Join me in Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Galatians chapter 2, our sermon is entitled Living by Faith, and our key words for our worshipers in training are law, faith, and grace. In John Bunyan's classic tale, The Pilgrim's Progress, the main character is a man named Christian. And Christian meets many different people along his journey. One of the men he meets is a man named Faithful. And Faithful recounts to Christian something that happened to him when he found himself at the foot of a place called the Hill Difficulty. As Faithful stood staring up the Hill Difficulty and deciding whether or not he would begin the ascent, or if he was going to take the easy way around on either side, he met an old man from the town of deceit named Adam the First. And this man promised to give Faithful all sorts of great pleasures in life, one of which was to marry all three of his daughters named Lust of the Flesh, Lust of the Eyes, and Pride of Life. Now at first, Faithful was pleased to hear what was being offered to him, and he was inclined to go with the man. However, wisdom prevailed, and fighting the good fight, he was able to break free from the temptations of the man, and instead he began to climb hill difficulty. But it wasn't long in the journey until he saw someone running at him, in his words, swift as the wind. And the man knocked Faithful out cold with one blow. And eventually, Faithful came to, and he asked the man why he had treated him so harshly. The man responded, it was because Faithful had a secret inclination toward Adam the first. And then the man hit Faithful hard again in the chest, and he continued to beat him. Until, faithful recounts, he was nearly dead at the man's feet. Once he came to again, faithful cried out for mercy, saying, Oh, wretched man that I am! But the man responds, I do not know how to show mercy. So once again, he knocks faithful to the ground. And were it not for another man who came, faithful would have been beaten to death. As Faithful is retelling this story to Christian, Christian explains to Faithful that the man who was beating him was a man named Moses, and that Moses does not know how to show mercy to those who break his law. Faithful recognizes this to be true right away and acknowledges that he had met Moses once before while still living happily back in the city of destruction. There, he recalls, Moses threatened to burn his old house down if he remained inside of it. Then Christian asked, who was it that made Moses stop? And Faithful replied that while he didn't know who it was at first, once the man passed by, he noticed holes in his hands and said that he concluded that it must be the Lord. Now, in this story, of course, Bunyan is portraying the law of God through the man Moses. And he illustrates for us the way in which the law works. 
while once he lived in the city of destruction, the law functioned in Faithful's life as that which threatened to burn his house down. It drove him away from the city of destruction to the celestial city. This is the first use of God's law, driving sinners to see their own demise. But what's interesting in the story is that Faithful rejects the wooing of Adam I, and yet he's still leveled nearly to death by the law on the hill difficulty because he was still inclined toward Adam I. Faithful at this point, of course, was a Christian, but he was tempted to live a life dependent upon Adam instead of the one who eventually came to his rescue, Adam the second, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, prior to becoming Christians, the law of God rules us. It enslaves us. It beats us. It threatens us because we know nothing else. Our lives are locked into an orientation toward works. The entirety of our lives are lived at the point upon an attempt to justify ourselves through law, through works. This is why people will readily tell you that they're good people. They've justified in their minds that they are because, after all, look at all the things I've done. And let's face it, I've never killed anyone. And it's made all the more terrible in that we are blind in our pre-salvation state and therefore completely unable to see and to understand our legal-hearted orientation and that it cannot save us. But more powerful to me in Bunyan's allegory is that he illustrates the undeniable reality that even after we are justified, even as Christians, we continue to get beat by the law because of the secret inclinations of our hearts to view and to use the law in the wrong way. We have a secret orientation to our former way of life based upon law instead of grace. But one of the primary motives in the Christian life as we grow in Christ should be away from our old legal orientation toward a life lived more consistently upon a new gracious orientation in Christ. The old man wants to be resurrected to live upon himself instead of allowing the new man to live upon Christ alone. When our passage this morning, Paul begins to unpack for the Galatians what life lived by faith in Jesus Christ looks like. Since we have been justified by grace through faith, apart from works of the law, we are free in Christ to walk in grace as new men and women who need not justify ourselves by our works, but by our works display the fact that we have been justified. This is really at the heart of what Paul is seeking to clarify for the Galatians. Namely, that our understanding of how the law and how the gospel relate to one another is one of the essential elements of the Christian faith. Now, Paul had laid out his letter to the Galatians in such a way that we can see that chapter 1 and chapter 2 up to about verse 14 was written to lay a historical foundation. 
And from there, he's able to lay a theological foundation from chapter 2 and verse 15 to the end of chapter 4. And then we'll see in chapters 5 and 6 the ethical outcome of all that he has written. So this morning, we're looking at the beginning of Paul's theological argument. We'll begin in verse 17. And I had intended this morning to get through the end of the chapter. However, we're going to look at only three verses this morning. And uh, within that, we'll see two main points and pick up with part two next week. Uh, If you're using one of our blue ESV Bibles in the back of the chairs, you can find our passage this morning on page 973. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 17. But the first principle that Paul unpacks for us this morning is that Christians have union with one another in Christ alone. Verses 17 and 18. Let's read. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, Paul's argument here is building upon what we looked at last week. Namely, that were anyone's salvation based upon an adherence to the law, what was the point of becoming Christians out of Judaism? For anyone to have a right standing before God, they must be justified in Christ alone, not by works of the law. The Jews had so often and so vigorously sought to fulfill the law, and yet they constantly fell short of it. So it's important to ask the question, how is one justified? What does that mean? How do we obtain that? One writer helps us. He defines justification as the act of God's grace whereby through the imputation of our sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness unto us, God the Father doth pronounce us righteous in his sight. Another way to say it from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. My sins and their penalty exchanged for his righteousness. Christ condemned in my place that I might stand with his righteousness in mine. And so when I stand before God on the day of judgment, I can say not what I have done but Christ, not my righteousness but his Now, Paul's language here in verse 17 is admittedly a bit confusing. But here's what he's saying. In our justification by faith alone, were we found to be sinners, and sinners I think we can cast in quotation marks. He's referring to the Gentiles. If we were found to be sinners, is Christ then causing us or leading us into sin? 
So the point is that when Peter sat with the Gentiles for table fellowship, remember uh, that was the primary issue that Paul was confronting Peter for last week when we looked at the previous passage. When Peter sat with the Gentiles, he was making a very clear point to everyone around that their unity was shared among God's people and was not based on their keeping of the law. It was not based on their ethnic identity. It was found on the fact that they were in Christ together and Christ alone. So Paul's now saying, Christ led us to this truth. He gave us this truth. He made it possible. So if you're going to say that having union and fellowship with our Gentile brothers and sisters is no longer acceptable and is actually a sin, you're saying that Christ himself has led us to this sin. There was a wall between Jews and Gentiles. And Christ removed that wall. And so if we continue as though that wall were necessary, we live in such a way as to call Christ a liar. Because in Jesus Christ, all who trust in him alone, we can say we are one with. The wall has been broken down. So Paul asks rhetorically, did Christ lead us into sin? And he writes, as he often does, very emphatically, certainly not, by no means, no way, God forbid. Christ has not led us to sin. How Jews are saved and how Gentiles are saved is one and the same. There is no difference. Both are sinners. Both are helpless to bring about their own redemption. And it is for this reason, Paul is arguing, that we all need to believe in Jesus Christ. And so we can hear, perhaps in this passage, that Paul's conversation with Peter continues, even though it's not in quotation marks, it may have carried over a bit. He's telling him, as Jewish Christians, we can share fellowship with Gentiles, our brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't make us sinners, unless we're saying that Christ has led us into sin. It cannot be. We are one in Jesus. And now in verse 18, Paul turns the issue to say that Peter, and in addition to Peter, remember last week we said other Jews were with him, and even Barnabas, Paul points out, because they are backing away from the table as to no longer have fellowship with their Gentile Christian brothers and sisters, (coughs) they're actually seeking to rebuild the very wall that Christ has torn down. And in so doing, they're transgressing the command of God. Christ took the division away, but by their actions, they're reestablishing the division. Therefore, they are themselves transgressors. And Paul, perhaps to highlight the temptation to do this very thing in his own life, he says it in the first person. If I do this, I prove to be a transgressor. If I rebuild the wall between Jews and Gentiles, I am trying to reverse the gospel. And all that Christ has accomplished was then for naught. There's a lot of application for us here. John Stott writes of other Christians, he says, if God has accepted them, How can we reject them? If he receives them to his fellowship, shall we deny them ours? He has reconciled them to himself. How can we withdraw from those whom God has reconciled? 
Now, however many differences there may be between ourselves and other Christians, and there may be very many, the shared blessing of justification makes us one in Jesus Christ. In our relations with other Christians, we ought to give practical expressions of that unity that we share. God has accepted every believer in Jesus Christ simply because he or she is a believer in Jesus Christ. And our doctrine of justification by faith alone challenges us to make this visible by doing the same thing as Christ. And I'll be the first to admit that there have been times when in my own spiritual pride or disdain for certain theological positions, I've willingly built a wall between myself and other brothers or sisters or another church, forgetting all along that Christ has removed that wall. Our unity with other Christians is not, first and foremost, founded on absolute, total, 100% across-the-board doctrinal agreement. Our unity with other Christians is founded upon Christ alone. Now, I'm not saying that doctrine doesn't matter. I'm not saying our differences aren't important or significant. But we cannot start with where we differ. We must begin with where we are the same. And if we believe in the pure gospel of Jesus Christ... And listen, I recognize that for some who call themselves Christians or for some uh, places that call themselves churches but really aren't, that this may be a big if. I'm not denying that reality. But if we believe the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, we are standing on the same solid ground of Christ and his redeeming sacrifice on our behalf with our other brothers and sisters even though we may have significant differences with them on other particular issues. But remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He prayed for us in John chapter 17 and verse 11. He said, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Brothers and sisters, there may very well be a day in our lifetime when God's people in America are forced to go underground, as already is the case in many parts of the world. At that point, I believe, all of the fakers are going to fall away. Those who claim the name of Christ because they're trying to gain something other than Christ. Those that think they're Christians but have not been truly transformed. So-called churches that actually despise the gospel and its implications and make very little of the word of God. They're not going to want to withstand the scrutiny and the persecution and they'll fall away. But then we'll be left with true Christians. And what are we going to do? Persecution is one of the very means that the Lord uses to bring his people into greater fellowship with one another, fulfilling the very thing Jesus prayed for in John 17. When we're being persecuted as the people of God, instead of finding ways to divide over non-essential issues of doctrinal difference, we'll likely be searching out one another, seeking to find true fellowship that we once used to enjoy out in the open. 
Look again, please don't hear me say that our differences aren't important, but do hear me say that at this point in my life in ministry, and having read through enough church history to see it, there has been a lot of time spent amongst Christians determining where we will draw the lines to make sure that we're divided instead of doing what Paul has said here, recognizing that the wall has been torn down. There are no shortages of church splits and denominational controversies or individuals who have unresolved conflicts with other Christians, and I can ashamedly say that I personally have been involved in all of those. And there are times when these divisions are necessary because there is a vital departure from the word of God to the extent that the gospel itself is lost. There may be unrepentant, persistent sin that is, uh, continues on. There may be a moral foundation of God's law that has been completely obliterated. But we're not talking about those instances. We're talking about those who are faithful and true to the word of God and his gospel. And God's intention for his people, as I think about this, just bears down on my heart with a thousand pounds of pressure to force me to ask the question, should we not be more patient with one another? Should we not sharpen one another in our disagreements as iron sharpens iron instead of sharpening our instruments for war? I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, across the board in America, we have two kinds of evangelical tables for fellowship. Either the table is so large that there's no way to actually experience any fellowship at all because the distance from one end of the table to the other is a different zip code altogether when it comes to what is true and important. I don't think we're in danger of falling into that. We're in danger always of the other table that is so small that we're constantly driving others away because they're trying to take a seat at the table, but we don't want to make room for them. God's people are far too comfortable, especially in our country. And I think we need to rethink unity in light of God's word, lest we all find ourselves standing on deserted islands by ourselves. Now, I've surely been convicted in many ways as I've thought through this. And one of the ways I've been convicted is thinking about what it takes to get there. How do we obtain that kind of unity? How do Christians get to the place where there is fundamental unity based upon the gospel because the wall has been broken down, knowing that we are one in Jesus Christ? I believe Paul provides us with the primary answer in the very next verse, in verse 19. And this is our second point this morning, and that is that Christians must die to our old legal way of life. Read with me verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. In order to understand what Paul means here, it's important for us to grasp what God was demanding when he gave the law. At creation, in the garden, God created and established a covenant with Adam. We call it the covenant of works. And in that covenant of works, God made his law clear to Adam. And the requirement was, do this and live. 
you do these things, you fulfill these things I've called you to, and then you will live. Now, of course, after the fall, Adam was no longer able to fulfill those requirements because of his sinful nature. At once, he put on the flesh of of rebellion and unwillingness to submit to the law of God. He had a heart that inherently desired to do the exact opposite of what God had commanded. And you and I, when we are born, we are born in a state of sin and misery. And our desire is to go against what God has commanded. All mankind is born with the responsibility to obey God perfectly with the covenant to do this and live, and yet all mankind falls short of that obligation. God has given his law. His requirement is perfect obedience to all of its moral demands, and we all fall short in one area or another of the moral law. And to fall short in one area of God's law is to transgress the whole thing. So it is right to say that the obligation to the law in perfect obedience remains on all of mankind apart from Christ. And if anyone were able to hypothetically keep the law perfectly, he would remain in favor with God. He would obtain eternal life. However, as we know, we are born in sin. We are conceived in sin. David tells us in Psalm 51. Only Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, therefore making each and every man, woman, and child guilty and without excuse before God. And so the law of God perfectly illustrates for us that we are under a curse. And we'll see that further in chapter 3. So all of us are born with a covenant responsibility to fulfill the law of God to perfection. But we can't because we are born in Adam with a sinful nature. And our sin grows and grows before God. It all hangs over our heads like a mountain ready to collapse on us when the weight of the law is applied to it, declaring that we are guilty, we are condemned, and we are worthy of damnation. And so now, one of the ways the law functions, which we call the first use of the law, is to convict us of our sin and to show us our absolute need for Christ because under the law alone, we stand condemned in the covenant of works which we cannot fulfill. So how does the law do this? The law irritates our sinful nature. The law to the unconverted is like a small grain of sand in the shoe. And it rubs and it grates and it causes a sore. And eventually that sore opens and it bleeds and it gets infected. And it becomes something that begins to ooze and to pus. And it gets bigger and wider and deeper. I'll keep going. Is that disgusting enough? This is what the law does. This is what it's designed to do. The sinful nature is irritated by the demands of the law because we can't fulfill it. And so we respond to it in one of two ways. Either we try to fulfill the law of God in our unconverted state and we continue to fall short of it and become more frustrated by it, or we just rebel against it completely. 
Paul illustrates this for us in Romans chapter 7. He said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would have never come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through that commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So sin is in our hearts. And once the heart hears the law say, don't do it, don't covet, what does our heart do? It gives rise to the sin that comes up and it wants to covet. Let me explain it this way. If you're a parent, you've seen this in your kids. I've seen it before. I won't tell you in who, but I've seen it. A child has a toy and it's gone untouched for weeks, perhaps months. It's under the bed. It's in the closet. They care nothing of it. But then one of the children rediscovers that toy And they pick it up and they begin to play with it. And instantly, both of them want it. A war breaks out. They wanted nothing to do with it for weeks or months, but they saw their sibling playing with it. And now I want it. I must have it. We're going to fight over it because all of a sudden it's forbidden. So now I have to have it in my hands. And we see the same thing in ourselves, right? What is your, your natural instinct when someone tells you not to do something you want to do? Or when you're told to do something that you don't want to do? Even as Christians, we can respond wrongly. Because the law is rigid, the law is unbending, and the natural desire of our flesh is to bend the unbendable. So we run up against it. And it burns us inside that we can't bend it. And so we back up and we run harder and push harder and we continue to try and bend the unbendable. We get more enraged. We get more opposed. So you see how the law can actually serve to stir up sin within us. This is particularly the case for those who aren't Christians. The law is designed to be like salt in the wound of our sinful nature. When I'm in sin, what's the very last thing I want to hear? Someone telling me that I'm in sin and I need to repent. Only a regenerate person can hear that word, repent, and respond appropriately. But we can only respond appropriately when we identify our inability in ourselves to live up to what the law demands. And when we do what Paul is saying here, when we die to the law and live fully and completely in Christ. You see, when we are seeking to live a life of works righteousness, seeking to earn God's favor through law keeping, we deny the truth about ourselves. We deny the truth about our own sinful nature. So we just pretend to be something we're not which is only to add sin on top of sin. Any attempt that we make at earning God's favor through law-keeping is hypocrisy. When we get self-righteous, we turn up the self-effort, we, we crank up our self-discipline in the power of the flesh, and we seek to resolve our sin issues by being more rigid with ourselves. 
I didn't do it right this time. I just need to try harder and do better. Or on the other end of the scale, we convince ourselves that God's standard is just too high and I am a man and uh, as a man I'm too low, so I just need to loosen up. Stop being so uptight about your holiness. We'll just ask for forgiveness in the end and it'll all be okay. Both of these responses are wrong. These are the very thing that Paul is calling us away from. So Paul tells us that we must die to the law, through the law, that we might live to God. What does that mean? It means that the law shows me by its demand that I cannot uphold its demands. Therefore, I need to die to my insistence that I can uphold it in my own will and my own strength and my own righteousness and see that it has been fulfilled finally and completely in Christ alone, thus making me able to live to God when I rest in Christ alone and trust solely in his righteousness standing before God in my place. Let me say all of that again. This is Paul's main argument. When he says I must die to the law, through the law, that I might live to God, it means that the law shows me by its demand that I cannot uphold its demands. Therefore, I need to die to my insistence that I can uphold it in my own strength, my own righteousness, my own will, and see that it has been fulfilled finally and completely in Christ alone, thus making me able to live to God when I rest in Christ alone and trust solely in his righteous standing before God in my place. But see, for Christians, here's the problem. And Paul is writing to Christians, remember. So this gets right to the heart of our own issues. Our legal hearts really like to only put some of the flesh to death. Why? Why not be slain completely and totally by the law that we can live completely and totally in Christ alone? Well, because we still want to hold on to some irrational way of life that is uh, founded on self-love and self-reliance. So when the law comes once again and makes a demand of me and it presses me in an area that I don't want to be pressed in, instead of relying on Christ and trusting in his strength and his obedience and his presence, his escape from temptation, I've left myself the option of resurrecting my legal-hearted way. I can resuscitate myself back to what I once was so I can justify my sin instead of repent of my sin. We fail so often to realize that our greatest experience of true joy and true freedom only comes from being slain of our old legal way of life, our old works-oriented way of life. When we put to death the old self, and live to God, we experience the true power of God that is available to us that we might walk in holiness and obedience because Jesus Christ was perfectly holy and obedient for us. But so often, what happens? Something arises, 
And we want to self-justify instead of relying on Christ. And so we get down on the ground and we give that old man or that old woman mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. We're still trying to breathe life into the old self. And there's nothing pretty about this image of us giving mouth-to-mouth of something that God has told us to see as a lifeless corpse. We're trying to renew the old self so that we can draw life from the flesh instead of being dead to our old legal ways and using all the means and instruments of God to empower us and fill us with life in Christ alone. And then the spiral downward continues because the world and the flesh and the devil are all at work to convince us that God himself is legal in his demands and they're too rigid or that his heart toward us is too small and too restricted that he would never actually enable us to do the very things he's required of us. But Christians, you know these things are lies. As a believer in Christ, you have what you never had apart from Christ. You have a non-obligation to sin. You do not have to sin. And you have all that you need at your disposal to be free from it. Now let's be clear. You will sin. You do sin. And before your life on this earth ends, you will not be free from sin. But you are enabled with the ability and the power of the Holy Spirit within you and the directives of God in his word to not sin. So believing the lie that God is legal or that God doesn't enable us to walk in obedience to his commands is believing a lie. And believing such lies about God turns us into ourselves. It closes our hearts against God and, back to our previous point, against one another. So I hope you're seeing a bit of what Paul has said in verse 19 right after dealing with fellowship among believers. I know it's difficult. But if my life is oriented on works, if my way of viewing all that God sets before me in the circumstances of my life is through the lens of works, I will deal with others in the same way that I assume God is dealing with me. Not through grace, but through law. I will place unending demands on other people. Demands that are impossible to fulfill because my standard is perfection in my own eyes. I cannot fulfill the demands myself, but I expect others to because I am dealing with them on the basis of law instead of grace. And so it causes bitterness and envy and resentment and hostilities, and a never-ending desire to see others live in my debt because the law I am holding to them is unbending. That was Peter's problem with the Gentiles, right? He had all the doctrinal knowledge of the gospel that it was the great uniter of the faith. It was the very thing that brought down the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. But he struggled to work out the liberating power of God's free grace in his own life. And so he dealt with everyone else on the basis of law. He resuscitated the old legal way of life and he began to operate in the comfort of his old legal heart. So let me try and summarize this for us and we'll be out of time and we'll pick up here next week. 
Paul shows us in verse 19 that in order for us to live to God, to have true life in communion with God, we must die to the law. The law is the very thing that God designed to bring about our death, which is why Paul said, through the law, I died to the law. However, we must also know that there is no power in the law itself to bring about this death. Remember, the man who beat up faithful on the hill difficulty, what did he say? He said he could only condemn, he could only beat him because he did not know how to show mercy. Because all the power that is needed to die to the law is found in the gospel alone. It is found in the man who comes by with holes in his hands that causes the beatings to cease. It is only in Christ that we can die to the law. And yet we must recognize the gospel does not stand on its own. In other words, the law is... The law is not what causes our death. It accuses us. It terrifies us. It threatens us. It beats us. It bruises us. It condemns us. But it's not the cause of death. It's the occasion of death. The law urges us to flee to Christ, who is the only true cause of death to the law. There is nothing we can do in ourselves to fulfill the law or die to the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. And in our lives, he has provided all the necessary power to die to the law for those who are in him. And once that happens, we see the operation of what we call the third use of the law. Instead of it beating us and threatening us, it becomes something sweet that we love, that we long for because it's our way of life. Instead of seeking our justification out of thankfulness for what God has given us in our redemption through Jesus Christ, we want to live before God in obedience. We want to utilize the means that he has given us so we can live free from sin and free from condemnation. In the Christian, the Spirit of God uses the law to apply all of its precepts to our hearts. And then this is when we see there is nothing good within us. It's when we realize we can't be right before God by keeping any law. We realize by faith what each of us must realize in order to die to the law, that we might live to God. In Romans 10, Paul writes, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It is impossible for us to justify ourselves and to satisfy the demands of the law in order to be right before God. Christ must satisfy all of it for us. Well, we made it through three verses. We'll pick up in verse 20 next week. But before we close, I want to address those of you here today who do not know Christ. There is no doubt in my mind that if you are not a Christian, in some way, in your heart, right now, you assume that you have some form of goodness within you. You look at your deeds, you look at your love for the people around you in your life, you look at what you haven't done, and you think of yourself as a good person. And so you're living upon yourself. You're living upon law, 
and you have a legal heart. Your confidence is in your own flesh. Your hope is in your own works. But God demands of you something far greater than you can ever fulfill. He demands perfection when it comes to living up to the demands of his law. Not yours, but his. And I must tell you, you've already fallen short in the very fact that you're seeking to justify yourselves because you have made yourself into your own God. But God isn't legal in the way that we are. God is gracious. God is merciful. God has provided a way of escape. Turn to Christ, the perfect law keeper that you might live. Rest in Christ, resting in his perfect obedience and sinner's death in the place of men and women like you and me. Die to your legal-hearted self and live to God in Christ alone. And Christian, what about you? In what areas of of your life are you breathing life back into the old flesh, the old legal heart? What ways are you seeking to live upon your own self-will, your own self-justifying works? Paul and God from his word is calling us today to give them up. Rest in Christ. Die to the law that you might live to God. And all that he is for you in Christ Jesus is far greater than anything that any one of us can provide for ourselves. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we recognize that at times your word is challenging. It's challenging to understand. It's challenging to apply. It's challenging to grasp. But I pray, Lord, that you help us all to press in on that challenge, to seek to grasp it, to know it, and to apply it in our own lives. Lord, I pray that each of us will be very thoughtful today and throughout this week about how it is that we express Christian unity with our brothers and sisters across the world Lord, may we not build up walls where walls have been torn down. May we enjoy the fellowship of the brethren. May we recognize that we may have differences and yet those differences can serve to sharpen us instead of divide us. May we view them rightly. And Lord, we recognize that we can only view one another rightly and deal appropriately with one another when we die to the law, through the law, that we might live to you. Help us, God, to not breathe life into our old legal hearts, but to live fully and completely upon Christ, that we can walk obediently to your word, not in an attempt to justify ourselves, but out of obedience and love for you, that you might be glorified in us. Father, I pray for those in here this morning who don't know Christ, that you would be pleased by the power of the Spirit to bring new life into them, that you would change them, transform them, bring death to their legal hearts, that they might live in the grace and mercy provided by you in Christ alone. Father, we love you, and we want to honor you with our lives. We want to do so in the way that you have provided. May we all live to God and not ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.